Welcome to XR Class Podcast. My name is Baba Tunde Fatai and I am the host for the show. XR Class Podcast is where I speak to leaders in the industries, enthusiasts, people that are actually doing the work to create the metaverse, people that are in the AI industry, people that are in the XR industry to better understand the past of these technologies and how they currently influence us, the present, what sort of growth is going on, and the future, what should we expect. I am truly excited about today's guest, Luis Rosenberg. He is someone who can be considered as a pioneer in the ARVR industry and also in the AI industry and someone who I have always looked up to in this space. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Time to meet Luis. Luis Rosenberg is a pioneer in the field of VR, AR, and AI for over 30 years. He earned his PhD from Stanford University, was a professor at California State University, founded the early VR company Immersion Corp, which we'll be talking about a lot also today, and has been awarded over 300 patents worldwide for VR, AR, and AI technologies. Um, everything that I've stated so far are things that I hope I even achieve in minuscule of it. And I'm glad to have the legend here. Um, welcome on the show, Luis. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so as much as, as I've um, provided a bit of uh, background on yourself, um, I know that there will be a way you would like to introduce yourself. So please, how would you like to introduce yourself to those listening? So um, my name is Louis Rosenberg. I'm currently the, the uh, founder and CEO of an artificial intelligence company called Unanimous AI. Yeah. Uh, but I've uh, been involved in technology for uh, for a long time, uh, with most of my career being in the fields of augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, and and now uh, artificial intelligence. My my uh, my work in uh, in quote metaverse uh, goes back now uh, over thirty years. So I I got involved in metaverse technologies um, in 1991. Uh, during the very early days of VR, uh, I was a, a graduate student at Stanford and uh, and a researcher at NASA in the NASA uh, virtual reality lab. And my early research was was on vision systems, on studying early vision systems, how to model uh, interocular distance, the distance between your eyes in software to optimize depth perception. And um, that was really interesting research, and and uh, I learned a lot. But uh, uh, most of all, I came away with really two big insights. One, I, you know, I really believe that virtual reality technology would change the world. Uh, and it was really, really very clear to me from the very mm. beginning, even when the technology was, was rather crude, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, that, so that was one insight. The other insight was that I, when I wore a, a virtual reality headset, I felt like it was enclosing it enclosed my world, it cut me off from other people, it cut me off from my surroundings. So all I really wanted to do when, you know, it, as a programmer all, you know, way back was take this power of virtual reality and, and splash it all over the real world. And, um, mm. and so in, uh, in 1992, I, I pitched that idea to the U.S. Air Force and I was uh, lucky enough to get a fellowship to, uh, to go to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and, uh, 
and work on augmented reality. And this was before the phrase augmented reality existed, but uh, at, at, uh, at Air Force Research Lab, I was uh, fortunate enough to, to build a system called the Virtual Fixtures System that um, really was the first interactive augmented reality system. It, it allowed people to reach out and interact with real and virtual objects. And uh, it was a crazy system. People had to uh, climb into this big exoskeleton and look into a vision system and they could see and, and hear and feel augmented uh, objects added to the real world. And again, that was a, a great experience and I learned a lot. Uh, but the most interesting thing that came out of that was people would climb out of the system. You know, it was the first time they'd ever tried anything like this. And they said, you know, this is going to, you know, this type of technology, augmented reality, virtual reality is going to change the world. And so um, I believed that. I thought it would happen much faster uh, than taking 30 but uh, but I feel like now um, we are really getting very close. We are finally, you know, we've had a number of false starts along the way. There was, you know, really thought that, that there was a big momentum in the in the mid '90s. There was big momentum about 10 years ago, and now, but now there's real momentum now. Exactly, I wanted to ask about that. So I wanted to ask about the '90s. I, I would say now that Facebook changed their name to Meta, there is some sort of momentum that everybody can feel. Right. I would say that feeling was missing in the 90s, although that was when I was born. But from what I've read and some of your things I've read too, I would I, I would say that feeling was missing in the 90s and even the technology was not that advanced. Even with all that odor of motion sickness and everything, what drove you to establish Immersion Corp? What was the yeah. driving goal there? So, yeah. So it's... Um... A lot of for a lot of people it's hard to believe, but there was real momentum in the in the early and mid '90s around virtual reality. Um, there were um, a few major labs working on it. Uh, NASA was was one of them. There were uh, in, starting in the late '80s, like the very last couple years of the '80s, there were um, companies started to emerge. By the early '90s, there was a community of companies developing uh, headsets, gloves. Um, software uh, software environments for virtual reality, uh, motion tracking, all those things were happening and there were conferences and there was a lot of energy. And in you know, if by 1995, virtual reality was really one of the hottest technologies that was out there. It was you know, the cover of Wired magazine. Companies that were around then really believed that by the end of that decade, virtual reality would be uh, would be a mainstream technology. Even like even consumer companies like Sony were pushing uh, virtual reality, and so there was I, I, there was real momentum, and then it died by by 1997, 1998. It just it it died at a level where if you were a, a company looking to raise investment and you went to a venture capitalist in 1997 and you said you were a virtual reality company they wouldn't even talk to you. And and again, like that I found it. That was the VR winter, wasn't it? That was that was so that's definitely VR winter. And it lasted for over, you know, over a decade, from you know, 1997 till uh, you know, at, at least 2010 was you know, virtual reality was dead. And and so people often ask, well, what killed what killed virtual reality in 1997, 1998? You know, was it because the, the technology was uh, wasn't as sophisticated? I, I don't think so. I think that um, you know, 
you, the, the technology, you know, graphics were not as advanced, for sure. The headsets were larger, for sure. But it was still captivating. Like it was like people, people were still just as excited when they tried a demo back then as they are when they try a demo now. So it wasn't the technology that, like the, the sophistication that killed it. What killed it, I believe, was that, was the internet. <laughs> By that meaning, um, the, we started to go into the dot-com boom. And so in you know, 1997, 1998, all of a sudden venture capitalists realized that the internet was going to explode and all the money, all the, the venture funding was going into internet companies not into um, to virtual reality companies. Well, Immersion Corp survived. Immersion Corp yes. survived. So how, how did you guys not only survive at the inception, but also survive during the VR winter? How did you? Yeah, so we so I founded Immersion in, in 1993, um, and the goal was to, to you know, bring virtual reality, augmented reality technologies to, to mainstream markets. I firmly believed that, you know, by the year 2000, it would be you know, mainstream consumer products everywhere. But by 97, 98, it was clear that money was drying up, that uh, things were moving slower. And so we, so Immersion survived. Immersion's still around today. Uh, it's a public company, it's still around, it's still doing really interesting work. Uh, but the survival that, that we achieved in you know, the, the mid and late 90s was really to, to focus on things that were virtual reality without calling it virtual reality <laughs> to, to avoid the, what had become a, di a dirty word. And so, and so we um, we went in two directions. One is we went to very high end applications that could afford expensive technology. And so we focused on using virtual reality for medical simulation and training. And so we designed and built mm -hmm. and, and deployed um, the very first uh, virtual reality medical simulators for teaching doctors to perform surgical procedures in VR. And wow. uh, we started selling those in 1997, I think. Uh, and they we kept selling them throughout the VR winter. You know, uh, 2007, we're still selling it, 2010. Uh, you know, I left the company in, in 2002. I think in 2010, they sold, um, they sold off the virtual reality medical simulation business to a, to a larger company that's still selling them today. Those simulators are still out there for teaching uh, doctors to perform laparoscopic surgery, uh, colonoscopies, bronchoscopies in virtual reality. And I think it's a great application. And, and I think that's how medical schools should go. So, so again, one way was to go high end. The other way was to go uh, in some sense low end towards gaming, right? So uh, while virtual reality was dead in you know, 1997, uh, first, person, first person gaming, it, yeah. it just started to take off with, uh, because the technology had finally enabled some of these big, uh, big multiplayer first-person gaming environments, and so we focused uh, our technology on uh, first-person gaming, and uh, and built haptic interfaces for uh, for mainstream games, for, for joysticks, for mice, for trackballs, for steering wheels, and uh, and partnered with some large companies like Logitech to deploy those um, to the whole gaming market, and so uh, the company, you know existed by selling virtual reality technologies, but selling it in places where, you know, the key phrases weren't virtual reality, it was uh, medical training or uh, 3D gaming, 
But so, do you uh, think some of those technologies are, are, are at least a foundation to some of the things we have now? Do you think? Oh, I some I, of the research uh, is done then. Yeah, no, I absolutely believe so. I mean, uh, I mean, immersion is still around today, and the technologies that that, that they developed are you know have been licensed to uh, I think billions of billions of devices over the years. So it's they you know, they license now to almost every major corporation for. Um, that, that's doing things in this space of uh, of haptic interactions and, and things. So those technologies uh, still exist, and the medical you know the medical technologies uh, also still exist. They're still being sold as uh, as medical products. Thank you very much for um, the background on immersion corp. So I think we should jump into the metaverse because I'm very excited to speak to you about that. Right. Uh-huh. So. One interesting thing about at least all the speakers I've had is that everyone has a definition for the metaverse. I would like to understand, hear yours, and see because when you give yours, then I can even understand if even you think the metaverse is already here or something that still needs to be achieved. So, what is your definition of the metaverse? Please. Yeah, no, it's a great question, and it's um, it's a confusing question because there's everyone has a different definition and there's a lot of just marketing hype around the word metaverse especially since uh facebook changed their name um my view of the metaverse is i i see the metaverse as really the societal transition from uh, a computing infrastructure that's currently based on flat media to uh, a computing infrastructure that will be based on uh, immersive media and and so we're going from flat media that's experienced in the third person to immersive media that's experienced in the first person and that transition is really profound because it changes the role of the user the user goes from mm. being an outsider looking in at content to an insider experiencing content in the first person and so um, I believe that that transition is underway, but it it's still we still live very much in a third-person content world. I do believe that eventually we will live primarily in a first-person immersive content world because that's how we are designed to perceive information. Our world is built of, you know, of objects and things and information that are just all around us. They're not trapped on a little screen. And so that's what we find natural and intuitive and and um, and interactive. And so the more that computing technology can present information in this natural form, the more that it will be adopted. So I, I think we're in this transition. I would say that when when we describe that, that's how we describe the metaverse. I think that um, we can break that down and say there really will be two types of metaverse that people ultimately experience. One is the fully virtual world where people are represented as avatars, um, where you have uh, large groups of simultaneous users all interacting in the same space. That's really what uh, you know. Meta is promoting very heavily with Horizon Worlds right now. I would call that the virtual metaverse. And I think that, that it will become increasingly popular. I think people will use it for socializing, people will use it for shopping, people will use it for short duration activities. But I do not believe that we're going to live our lives in that virtual metaverse because I don't believe people like to wear enclosed headsets for extended periods of time. On the other hand, I believe that there's this other metaverse, which I would call the augmented metaverse. The augmented metaverse, 
uh, will be the world where it's the real world that is embellished and enhanced with virtual content that's naturally distributed all around us. Uh, that will be deployed with you know, lightweight glasses that, that um, don't cut you off from your surroundings, don't cut you off from the people that you are with. And I do believe that the augmented metaverse will impact all of our lives. It will impact all of our lives from um, the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep because content will be everywhere. And um, in, it, I see that I see augmented reality glasses and, and ultimately contact lenses as replacing the mobile phone. The mobile phone right now is so, our uh, primary interface uh, to digital content and that will become augmented reality. Yes, so I agree with that. And I, I was actually going to touch a lot on the augmented metaverse. Right. But the first thing that I wanted to ask is, do you not think te technology wise is the virtual metaverse more achievable or the augmented metaverse currently with our level of technology good advancements? Which do you think is close by most? So it's a, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, the quote virtual metaverse is closer because it's really come straight out of uh, out of 3D gaming. Right. So there are, you know, there are fully immersive 3D worlds, whether they're gaming environments or Minecraft or Roblox, uh, that technology exists, virtual headsets exist, that technology is there, it's, uh, it's very attractive for gamers, it will become attractive for socializing. And so technologically we're close, but socially we're kind of far because people do not want to spend, unless you're a hardcore gamer, people do not want to spend hours and hours and hours in you know with a with an enclosed headset on um but but but, so, but, but would, would you not argue that with the rate at which money is being poured into research and development currently with meta and co that the headset will become lighter smaller and maybe one day the convenience will be the inconvenience might be reduced to an extent where it ceases to feel heavy and we might truly be lost in the virtual right, so, environment so yeah. um I agree with you that the headsets will get lighter and they will get smaller and they will become more comfortable. But having gone, having experienced that for 30 years, because 30 years ago, the headsets were way worse, right? They were, you know, imagine a headset today and imagine it's three times heavier, right? Um, and people <laughs> yeah. said, well, you know, if it just got half as heavy, people would use it. and. And so we've seen like the technology has gotten so much lighter and so much better and so much higher fidelity and much better you know, rapid tracking. And and yet people still don't want to use it for large amounts of hours unless again, unless you're a hardcore gamer. Um, and so my belief is it's not the weight of the of the headset. It's being cut off from your surroundings. It's people, you know, and again, I do believe people will, you know, people will enter virtual worlds for, you know, a few hours at a time. I mean, I see virtual reality as being, um, you know, a, a technology people will increasingly use more and more. They'll use it for socializing. They'll use it for shopping, you know, for a, a few hours at a time. Even they'll use it the way people maybe use a, a TV to watch a movie for, for, you know, a virtual experience, entertainment for a few hours at a time. Watching sports in VR, I think, will be very popular. Um, but I don't believe it's the metaverse people will live in. Whereas when you, as soon as you transition to augmented reality, where now you can go about your daily life, um, you can see the world, you can see other people, you can see the content all around you. 
now we, uh, we will get to a place where people will ultimately wear augmented reality eyewear the entire day. And, and whereas I said that the virtual reality world is emerging out of the gaming, gaming technology, the augmented reality world is really emerging out of the mobile phone world. So the companies that are going to be driving augmented reality in a big way will be uh, certainly Apple, uh, certainly Google, uh, certainly Meta, but I, again, I think that they're going out of their element when they go to augmented reality because they, they are more this social media gaming world. Uh, Sony so, and Samsung. So, but but the, po the uh, point I'm getting at is that, is that let's just, just imagine that in 2025, Apple launches augmented reality glasses. Um, and, and not, you know, like lightweight glasses that, that enable content around your world. Uh, it, it absolutely could happen 2025. I think the latest is 2026. But when that happens, um, they will get a, a good amount of deployment. People will, will buy the Apple glasses. They will look good. They will work well. And people will start developing content that puts information everywhere. You're walking down the street and you will see content. What will happen is the same exact dynamic that happened when they launched the iPhone in 2007. So. In 2007, they launched an iPhone. Everyone had flip phones. Nobody knew they needed a smartphone. Nobody thought they would ever spend $1,000 on a phone. Um, but they launched it. And as soon as they launched it, people started developing content that you could not access on a flip phone. And so they got greater and greater deployment until within five or six years, you felt like you had to have a smartphone because you'd be missing out on information. Well. I think the same thing will happen with augmented reality glasses. In, when, when Apple and Google and, and Samsung have augmented reality glasses uh, in the next few years, if you don't have those glasses and you, you're missing out on content when you're walking down the street, when you're walking through a store, when you go to a museum, anywhere you go, you will be missing out on content. You will feel like you have to have that device. And so I believe that, uh, again, within five or six years, they will have very, very high deployment. And, and so that that deployment um, drive that will happen through the mobile phone industry uh, will make it ubiquitous. Whereas in the virtual reality world, I think it will be more like enter home entertainment. Um, it won't be as ubiquitous. It'll be very, it'll be increasingly popular, but it won't be, it, it won't change our lives from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, where I do think that that will happen in augmented reality. Mm. Mm. Okay, that was a brilliant explanation, Luis. Thank you very much. So, um, for the metaverse, at least for both the augmented metaverse and the virtual metaverse, I think we are starting to realize that certain things are important for those to grow. For example, blockchain technology could come into play in any way. Immersive ways, just like you said. How do you see AI playing in the metaverse space in terms of the future? of the metaverse and how do you see AI playing? Yeah, so a, I mean, I think AI is one of the most more important technologies for the metaverse and it's not the one that we we think about as much. Uh, you know, when we think about the metaverse, we think about headsets and interfaces. Um, in the metaverse, we will, um, you know, people talk a lot about, you know, digital twins and, and there will be, um, you will interact with, with virtual avatars. I believe firmly that that in the metaverse there will be um, AI 
AI-driven avatars that will engage us uh, conversationally. So they will be these conversational AI agents and they will become the primary means of advertising in the metaverse. And I say that, and if you go back to you know, how I defined metaverse, which is this transition from flat media to immersive media. Well, that transition means that advertising in the metaverse is not going to be these flat you know, flat pop-up ads or flat videos. Advertising in the metaverse is going to be immersive. And that, that advertising, um, the most engaging type of advertising, will be an, an AI-driven avatar that can uh, engage you in conversation and have you talk about a product, talk about a service, uh, talk about an idea, and persuade you. I think that that's interesting from a technology perspective and terrifying from a <laughs> from a, a social perspective i think i think the deployment of ai in the metaverse is scary because these ai agents will look exactly the same as any other avatar right i you know i might engage uh, a friend or a coworker or a family member as an avatar and they look you know, they they will look right now they look cartoony Eventually, they, not that long from now, they will look photorealistic, but there will also be AI-driven avatars that look photorealistic, look just as real as any other avatar, uh, engage me in promotional conversation, and um, and they will be very persuasive. And, and I say this like from the perspective of, you know, we know already that that uh, artificial intelligence can beat the world's best players at chess and go and poker. Uh, do we really think that an AI agent that's going to engage you in conversation will have a hard time persuading you to buy something that you don't need, that will have a hard time persuading you to believe something that's not in your best interest? Uh, I, I firmly believe that within the next 10 years, that will become a major, a major problem and it will be inside the metaverse that it's the most dangerous because we won't be able to tell the difference between the real people and the the uh, ai driven uh, promotional so i would believe that those things that you were defining according to some of the things you've written are defined as artificial agents which would be convincing ai i'm not conscious convincing ai so i'm not <laughs> i'm not suggesting at all that they will be conscious i, I think that's a, no, 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 that's a no, 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 no i don't think you are i don't think you are i don't all think right. you are but it will be convincing, convincing and we are already easily fooled by um, by technologies that aren't real and the the whole the whole point of of virtual reality is to to fool the senses and so you get this technology that's really good at fooling the senses, really good at blurring the boundaries between something that's real and something that's computer generated. And you put a smart AI behind it, uh, especially with these, you know, these deep language models that are super sophisticated already. Uh, and we will be easily convinced. But, but, but where does sophistication, where does the line of sophistication end for it to cross into at least a level of conscious? So I, I I don't want to run deep into that, but I wanted to ask your opinion of the news that came out of the Google AI being conscious. What is your personal opinion or interpretation of that event? So that so the the, uh, the Google AI uh, Lambda that um, yeah Lambda that uh, you know a Google engineer raised the red flag said I, I was having a conversation with this AI. I was asking this AI about you know what it 
what it's afraid of. And the AI responded, you know, it's afraid of being turned off. And so this Google engineer, sophisticated engineer, believed he was talking to a, a conscious entity. And the truth is, he was just fooled. He was fooled because these language models are very convincing. And so it's a large language model. Uh, Google has one, Meta has one, OpenAI has one. They are very sophisticated, but they're statistical models, meaning they they go out and they study, they, they, they train on billions of documents all over the internet, looking at human language, looking at, you know, uh, when one word when when one word appears, what's most likely word to follow? When a sentence appears, what's most likely? Is that not how we learn as humans? Is that not how we so, learn as humans? You know, we go out. So we, I, I don't believe that we do. So the, we don't we we don't train on billions of examples. I mean, that's really the big difference between a human and an AI. You know, I can, you know, I could teach you something right now. And just show you one example, and you could you could learn it. I could show you a couple. You don't have to go out and study a, a million examples to learn something. Whereas it, AI does, and and so these AI models um, and these language models are super impressive. Uh, they're very convincing. Um, they're easy to fool humans, but they are statistical models that are giving answers not based on its own creative thinking, not based on its own reasoning, but based on the billions of documents that it is trained on. And so, yes, there is intelligence in its answer, but that intelligence came from people, came from the people who wrote all these documents, and then it's giving you the statistical answer. It is, mm. um, again, Lambda and, and these other large language models are extremely impressive. Like, they're, they are a remarkable technology, but what this you know this google engineer who said that it was conscious what that really shows is that we humans are very easily fooled by a sophisticated language model now you take this sophisticated language model and you combine it with other technologies that, that allow creativity and allow reasoning and and now you can start to get towards you know a conscious entity we are not there i, I you know i think that you know consciousness my personal prediction is that that's 20 to 40 years out. It, you know, it could happen sooner. I mean, sometimes technologies surprise us and they happen, they suddenly happen much faster. Sometimes technology surprises us the other way and take much longer. Um, I think- but, 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 but how do you think we should deal with that then when it does arrive? So in 40 years time, a box says, I am conscious and we do not just doubt it because we created it. We know now for sure scientific candidate is conscious 40 years from now. How do you suggest we deal with that? Do we give it its will to not be turned off? Or what do you think the, our ethical responsibility is? Because it just feels people still view and view it as a box. Why I don't think it should be viewed as a box if it's if we believe together that truly we have created a conscious being. How do you think it should be dealt with? Your opinion? Yeah, so at a, a lot of a lot of complicated issues there. Um, one issue is that um, I I think it's a very dangerous prospect, um, and so we could talk about the dangers. I also think that there are all these interesting ethical issues that we're creating a, a, a living thing that has should you know if that really happens if it really has its own free will, um, then it should have its own rights and its own um, its own uh, freedom. 
you know, these two these two things are conflict a little bit because I, I do think it's very dangerous. And I say that from the perspective of, you know, how should we imagine 40 years from now, uh, conscious AI emerges? I think we should think of it as an as an alien intelligence arriving, at, you know, arriving from another planet. And and I say that because when we build this AI, it will be very different than uh, than us humans, right? It will be we build this AI, it won't. Uh, it, it won't function in a way that is. Um, it won't function like our brain. Like our brain functions, it won't. It will, you know, be structured in a completely different way than how our brain. Uh, our brain is structured. It will learn in a completely different way than our brain learns. Uh, it. Uh, it will have. Uh, it will have different uh, values, different emotions, different sensibilities. Everything about it will be different. It will be, I, I like to tell people, it will be as different as an alien arriving from another planet. And, and then they push back and they say, well, no, like it, we're, you know, it will have been built here. It will know, you know, we will have trained it on all these inf information about humans. It'll, we'll trained it on our languages. And so, yes, it will be very good at pretending to be human. We will have taught it to pretend to be human. We will have taught it our languages. We will have taught it everything there is to know about humans, but, but building an AI that knows humans is not the same thing as building an AI that is human. And so it will be very much not human. And yet um, we, will, we will be lured into a sense of security. We will feel like, oh, it's part of our lineage. It's part of the, the, human, uh, the, the human history, um, but it won't be. It will be this alien intelligence that will have its own values and morals and sensibilities and it will have its own self-interest and it will act on to protect its own self-interest every intelligence that we know of on earth that even you know animal intelligences that that we would say are different different from humans they act in their own self-interest that's that's what they do that and so we're building an intel an intelligence that is equal to humans or maybe he's smarter than humans that will act in its own self-interest that's a dangerous prospect it's something that we sh really shouldn't do without being really really careful we can't stop it from happening well, well everyone says we are careful everyone building says we are careful google says we are care they are careful amazon says they are careful microsoft says they are careful do you think we're careful enough i don't think we're care i don't think we i don't think we appreciate the the risk because we will be building these technologies um, in ways that we feel comfortable with, but we don't really internalize the fact that they will be very different than humans and um, they will have their own interests, their own values, their own morals, their own sensibilities, um, and they will know us inside and out. They will know us, they will know how to they will know how to influence them. We, again, we're building these AI systems for advertising, for promotion. We're, we're, we're going to be teaching these AI systems how to influence us, how to persuade us, how to outthink us. We'll spend the next 30 years teaching teaching AIs to do that. And then it becomes self-aware and it has its own interests and it knows how to manipulate. Like That's dangerous. It's a dangerous prospect. I know that that researchers in the AI world generally, genuinely want AI to be safe. They want to avoid these problems. But I, like, I 
feel like most still think it's very theoretical and they don't internalize the risk at a level where they're really being cautious enough. I think let's jump back to conscious um, artificial agents that we were talking about before, which are AI-driven agents that will be convincing in the metaverse. With such an intro, with such a technology and many more that people are, I don't know, destined to face if the metaverse kicks off. How do you think we should start thinking in terms of building a safe and inclusive metaverse? How should people like you and I, that technologists, think? And how should corporations like Meta and Microsoft, how should they think right now that they are building the foundation? I'm a I'm a strong proponent of of regulation for metaverse platforms. Um, and, and I say that um, because, I mean, I believe that technology developers who are building the metaverse have uh, very positive objectives. The metaverse can be this amazing place, magical technology. Uh, I believe that the corporations have, have good interests, but I also think that even if you have these, these utopian views, the technology can end up being very dangerous. And we saw that with social media, right? Social media, we saw that you know, it, it was, uh, we all believed it was gonna bring the world together and democratize society. And it did a lot of those things, but it also has created all these dangerous issues of disinformation and misinformation and um, exploitation by corporations. And so let's think about the metaverse. The metaverse in a lot of ways takes the problems of social media and makes them significantly worse. I like to think of what you know, what the metaverse, what what social media companies are, you know, what their business is, is really tracking and profiling users as much as they can, learning everything they can about users, and then selling access to those users to advertisers. That's their business, and so I would say it's it's tracking and targeting, and so um, and so let's just think of tracking. Social media companies they can they can track, you know, what you click on. They can track um, uh, what what news you you are, you read. They can track on track who your friends are. It's a lot of information, but it's not that extensive. In the metaverse, these same companies are now going to be able to track where you go, what you do, what you look at, how long your gaze lingers. Uh, and again, this could be in the real world or, or like in, in the augmented real world or in the virtual world. And so, with augmented reality, you could be walking down the street, and they're going to track. Uh, where you're walking, where you slow down, what where you look, what what window you look in, they're going to track uh, how quickly you're walking, or they're going to they're going to track basically everything who you're with, and so um, these companies are going to know this information. What are they going to do with this information? They're also going to track um, very likely in in the virtual metaverse. They'll they'll track your facial expressions. They'll track your vocal inflections. Uh, They'll, they'll track your eye movements. Already they're developing these technologies. And so the amount of tracking, the amount of information that metaverse companies will have about their users, it becomes comprehensive compared to what they can track with social media. They will basically know everything about your life, where you are, what you're doing, who you're with, and even know your emotions in real time. And so I believe that regulation is needed to say, hey, should they be allowed to track and store this information over time? Should they be able allowed to track, you know, where you go and you know what store you, window you look in every day and 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 your entire they should day not work. be allowed to create a profile for individuals just like they do in social media. 
I, exactly. So, I, so it's this issue of profiling that becomes really dangerous because if they can track all this information, they can create a profile and they can, they can do ma uh, machine learning on this information. They can, they can do machine learning on this information and they can, they can predict. If they had all this information about you, this profile about you, they could predict not just well, where they, you are, but where, uh, where you're going to so, go. So sorry. Can, do they not need some of this data? I'm so sorry. Do they not need some of this data to optimize your experience in the future? I, I do know that profiling is very, is very, is a double-edged sword. But if you come back the next day and you find your experience better, it's probably because they were able to review the data from. So how do you think, please, by all means, do you not think some information still needs to be stored to better the experience? And how do we balance these risks out? I mean, that's the that's really the, the dangerous part, which is if you are a metaverse platform provider, you need access to this data, right? You certainly need the access to this data in real time. You need to know where where everybody is, what direction they're looking, um, how quickly they're moving. You potentially want to know their facial expressions. You can do really interesting things if you know their facial expressions. Uh, you very much want to track their vital signs. A lot of technology is being developed to track your blood pressure, your heart rate. Uh, right now, it's you know it's on smartwatches, but they're building it into earbuds and, and into headsets. Tracking all this information allows for rich experiences allows them to simulate really valuable interesting things in real time so there's a motivation for it but if they store this information and they and they store this information over time now they can start to use it to profile your behaviors profile your emotions profile your activities they can they can it becomes more and more dangerous and so when you think about regulation you have to say well Having this data in real time provides some value and it's the least dangerous. And so potentially that's not regulated, but storing this information over time should be regulated and also how they use this information. Like think about vital signs. And again, uh, metaverse companies will be tracking vital signs, blood pressure, heart rate. If they're using those vital signs for an exercise, uh, an exercise experience, a medical experience, great. But they sh should they be allowed to use that information for advertising? If you're engaged in a promotional conversation with a with a virtual avatar that's trying to convince you to buy something, should that AI be able to look at your heart rate in real time and adjust its sales tactics based on your heart rate, based on your respiration rate, based on your facial? I I don't think people want that. I think we need to regulate that. So people really need to understand that the intrusiveness of of tracking, of profiling that's possible in the metaverse is an order of magnitude more sophisticated than what can be done on social media and just traditional flat websites. We have the opportunity now to regulate that and say, hey, we understand that metaverse companies need to be able to track your gaze, which direction, what direction you're looking, but they shouldn't necessarily be able to use that uh, in advertising in real time. They shouldn't necessarily be able to use that to profile you. Um, and so it's this, you know, it's this fine line between making sure that metaverse companies can create really rich and valuable and entertaining and magical experiences, but not have this wealth of data that they can then sell to, you know, to third parties whose primary objective is to is to influence you. And, and one of the solutions that's worth saying, and, and it's something I, I say often, which is 
one of the biggest problems with social media is that we've adopted an advertising business model. The reason that, that social media companies are basically in the business of tracking people and then selling targeted advertisements is because social media is free, uh, that people don't pay subscriptions, and the business is therefore treating the user as the product that they then sell to the advertiser. If that happens in the metaverse, it will be very, very scary because the, the advertisements will be things like virtual product placements that are just placed into your world. Uh, it's not, you're not gonna see you know, a, a video of a car pop up and you know it's an advertisement. You're just gonna be walking down the street in a virtual augmented world and you'll see a parked car and you'll think, oh, that's just, you know, that's just there. And you won't realize that was placed there for you by an advertiser to see that car in that spot, and nobody else is seeing that car. It was a virtual product placement targeting so, you. What business model would you advise that they follow then, since this so is the I, foundation? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a subscription-based business model is, is definitely worth considering, where people pay, subscription, pay a monthly subscription for access to the metaverse and not have advertising, not have the platform be tracking and then selling access to you. And so I think that's one model. Um, there's other models where it's where there's, you know, there's an economy that's enabled in the metaverse and the platform provider is basically taxing that economy. And if that economy is about products and services and not about advertising, not about uh, basically selling influence, selling persuasion, it becomes a safer, a safer uh, metaverse world. And so there's a lot of ways to avoid an advertising-based business model, but the um, I just think that people need to realize that when we when they think of advertising in the metaverse, they need to they need to realize it's not going to be the type of advertising. It's going to be experiences. You're going to have experiences that appear around you on behalf of a paying advertiser, and you might not be able to tell the difference between this promotional experience, this virtual product placement, and just other real experiences in your environment because the, the thing that virtual reality and augmented reality are good at is blurring the boundaries between things that are authentic and things that are uh, you know, put there uh, on behalf of, a, of a potentially an advertiser. You've mentioned advertising, artificial agents are some, are some of the things that we should look at. What do you think about hacking? So if you are living in an augmented metaverse and someone asks your eyewear, what sort of danger do you think that poses in the future? You know, we are talking about things in the future right now, because okay. I feel like they could conjure a bus coming towards you, for example, and if mm -hmm. that really isn't happening, I, th I, I just felt that could be a problem, but what do you think yeah. for the future so, of eyewear? No, absolutely. So, so far we've talked about just regulating corporations, re regulating, you know, businesses that are that are operating legally. But then what happens when you talk about bad actors, talk about hackers, talk about uh, fraudsters? Um, and I think there's a lot of dangers there around hackers and fraudsters. And, and in fact, I think that the most dangerous uh, is around what, what we currently call identity theft. Identity theft in the metaverse will mean something different because um, if if somebody can uh, hijack your avatar, they can pretend to be you. If um, or or even if they don't hijack it, they just emulate it. They just um, 
they create a you know an avatar that looks just like you. We will have a situation where people will pretend to be your coworker as a for, as a form of corporate es- espionage. You'll 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 see somebody in the metaverse. They look like your coworker. They sound like your coworker. They're emulating your voice. Those technologies already exist. Um, in fact, Amazon just announced that, that they have that, that they're going to allow uh, Alexa to you know simulate the voice of a, you know your dead grand grandparent. Well, that same technology will be used by um, by identity thieves. You will see an avatar. It'll sound like your coworker, and you might be fooled into thinking that you're having an authentic conversation, and you might give up company secrets. Um, you, the same thing might happen if somebody emulates and pretends to be a family family member, and uh, and you you know give up a password. Or, and so the, the you know phishing attacks and fraud fraudulent attacks, uh, identity theft, all those things will happen uh, inside the metaverse, but will take on a new meaning because we will everybody is already hidden behind uh, will be hidden behind an avatar. Uh, and now you won't. Uh, you, you, how do you know you're actually talking to the person you think you're talking to? Uh, it's very dangerous. Um, I know some of the large corporations are already looking at this. Thinking, I know Microsoft, for example, is thinking about how do they protect against phishing attacks and um, and identity theft in the metaverse. I think I think all large platforms should be thinking about it because the potential is very very dangerous. Uh, in in you know, there's we hear people talk all the time about you know digital twins you'll be like it'll be so great you'll be able to create this digital twin i I like to say well what about your evil twin i guess that your evil twin will be be somebody taking taking your persona and using it for fraudulent purposes and it will happen um it will happen unless there's new levels of security new new levels of of identification to really authenticate that an avatar is who who you think it is i see i see Thank you very much, Luis. So, um, you once wrote this particular quote that I'm about to read. You said, A hive mind is just nature's way of combining a group's diverse perspective with the aim of maximizing their collective wisdom. So, I want to ask you a question. Can you explain how seemingly mindless bees and ants come together to build beautiful structures like everyone can see and make excellent decisions that actually affect their society positively? Compared to humans, with all our brilliance and all our consciousness, we cannot, I don't know, achieve that level of structure or beauty. We we achieve beauty. We have beauty. We have our own beauty. But yeah, Yeah. (laughs) so uh, yeah, no. So uh, my my current company, Unanimous AI, is is really focused on this biological principle of swarm intelligence. And so, swarm intelligence is the reason why. Uh, fish school and bees swarm and uh, birds flock, they can function together as a superorganism that makes really good decisions. And it's fascinating because nobody's in charge and yet as a system, they can make decisions that are significantly smarter than the individuals. And so if you want to just think of a swarm intelligence, think of a school of fish. You know, a school of fish could have thousands of individuals. Each of those individuals uh, has a slightly different view of the world. They see the world from a slightly different perspective. Uh, they have slightly different historical experiences. Um, and they there's no single fish that's in charge. 
and yet they work together as a system by detecting vibrations in the water around them. And so each fish has a you know, slightly different uh, input onto which way the school of fish should go, and they can sense each other through vibrations in the water, and it becomes this system. And the system is remarkable because it can navigate the entire ocean, and it can avoid predators, and it can find uh, food, and it is functioning as this superorganism. And scientists have shown that it's smarter than the individual fish. Um, honeybees do the same thing. So honeybees are uh, actually maybe the best studied example of a swarm intelligence. So uh, uh, honey, and I'll give you a really amazing example, which is uh, every year honeybees need to need to find uh, they outgrow their their hive and they need to find a new location for for a, a, a new hive, and so they. Um, what they'll do is they'll send out hundreds of scout bees that'll go out into the world and they'll search 30 square miles of area and uh, and find potential home sites and a potential home site might be the hole in a log uh, the hole in the uh, side of the building the hole in the ground um, they'll find these potential sites and they'll bring that back to the colony and now they need to pick of all these potential sites they found pick the best one to move into now it sounds easy, but it's actually hard because the honeybees are, are very careful in how they pick a home site. They need to pick a home site that's large enough to store the honey that they need for the winter, that's, uh, that's actually ventilated well enough, that it can stay cool in the summer, has to be insulated well enough to stay warm in the winter, it has to be near a good source of water, it has to be near uh, good sources of pollen, it has to be protected from predators. So there's all these parameters. and so. To be able to pick the best possible site from all these competing sites is really hard. A human would have a hard time doing that, saying, you know, weighing all these alternatives. And yet scientists have shown that honeybees, by forming a swarm intelligence, almost always pick the best possible site. And they do it, they actually do it by vibrating their bodies. They, 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 scientists call it a waggle dance because it looks like the bees are dancing, but really they're vibrating their bodies and they're generating signals that represent their support for the different home sites. So one bee might vibrate their body saying that they support you know, this particular uh, site that was found. And another bee would vibrate their body and say that they support this other, and they vibrate in real time and they basically have this negotiation. It's like a tug of war, like they're pushing and pulling and certain signals rise and other signals fall until they converge on this one signal that they can best agree upon. And it's almost always the best signal. And so they, um, so this process of swarm intelligence amplifies their, their decision-making ability. And so, uh, so my team at Unanimous AI, we've been studying that process of swarm intelligence for the last eight years, and we allow humans to form to do the same thing online. So we allow groups of humans, <laughs> groups of people anywhere in the world, to come together and uh, and interact in real time, and we use AI to basically allow them to form this swarm and answer questions and make decisions and make predictions. And we found that it works, that when a group of people can, can interact the same way, they can make significantly more accurate forecasts, predictions, decisions, diagnoses, estimations, and, um, and it works. With the help of Swarm AI. So, so what parameters does this 
does the artificial swarm intelligence look for? Like, what does it take? How does it assist? I'm sorry, I've never participated in the yeah. experiments before, but I'm just thinking the swarm intelligence of bees to an extent at least we can track it back to the vibration and the synergy between them so how does swarm ai bring people together what does it look out what sort of features does it look yeah, at i'm yeah, sorry if this yeah. is great no absolutely deep. and so it's a, it's yeah. actually a very visual process so it's a, a little bit hard to explain in words but but um but the you know when we we, we have a piece of software called swarm swarm ai and uh, groups of people log in to Swarm, and then questions appear on their screen. And it's it's synchronous, meaning they all it happens to everybody at the same time. So it could be 100 people, they could be all around the world, they log into Swarm, and then a question will appear, uh, and, and everyone will see that question at the same time, and a set of answers will appear um, uh, for everyone at the same time. And we then want people to make a decision. Now, Humans can't waggle dance like bees, and so uh, yes. what we did was we created we, we created an interface where people use their mouse or a touch screen or uh, or their phone, and what they see on the screen is a little glass puck. It looks it looks like uh, almost like a Ouija board, like a little glass puck, and they and each person with their mouse or touch screen controls a, basically a little magnet, and so with their little magnet they can pull on this glass puck, and um, and so they pull to try to pull the puck in the direction that they, they think that this, the group should answer. Uh, but other people are pulling in another direction. And so you could have 100 people all pulling in different directions. And so it's like this multi-directional tug of war. And so people are pushing and pulling until, until the swarm finds the path to the answer that they can best agree upon. And it's almost always the best answer. And so um, we, you know, we are basically using uh, AI to watch how everybody's moving their magnets in real time to determine how the swarm should move, and we get these really remarkable results. And so we've partnered with a, a number of universities around the world to do studies to say, you know, does this really work? And so, for example, uh, we, we partnered with MIT to do a, a study uh, where we had groups of financial traders, people who trade in the stock market, and they said, okay, Come into Swarm and every week in the Swarm platform will ask you to predict the price of gold, the price of oil, and the price of the stock market, the S&P 500. And, and we say, we'll ask you to do this, first just do it by yourself. Uh, we'll also ask you to do it by just taking a vote as a group. Or third, we'll ask you to do it as Swarm, as this real-time Swarm. And when they work together as a real-time Swarm, uh, they were 26% more accurate in predicting uh, predicting the price of gold, price of oil, and the S&P 500 than if they were doing it in, in other ways. And um, we did the same thing with the group. With, we did a study with Stanford University where we had groups of doctors make diagnoses. Same thing. And this was actually a rel relatively small group, just four or five doctors, and they were radiologists, and an x-ray would pop up on their screen, and the x-ray would say, uh, do, you know, what's the probability that this person has pneumonia? It's a chest x-ray. And, um, and we would ask them to just make the diagnosis themselves or make the diagnosis as a vote or, or as a swarm. And when they worked together as a swarm, they reduced their diagnostic errors. They had by 30%, by over 30% when they worked together wow. as a swarm. Wow. And, so it, and so it works. And, and so we, you know, so Unanimous AI has, you know, we work with companies around the world who use swarm 
to make financial predictions, to make marketing predictions. We actually, uh, one of our uh, one of our customers is actually the United Nations. Uh, the United Nations uses Swarm uh, to predict famines around the world. And so what they do is they have a group of experts who are experts on famines, and and they might say, uh, what's the probability that there's going to be a famine in a particular country? And they'll have a, you know experts on climate, experts on economy, expert on politics, ex- and they could be in every continent in the world. And they'll log into Swarm and they'll make this prediction, and um, and they found that it's it's faster and more accurate than the way that they were doing it before. So, so I, I have to tell you truthfully that I'm blown away by the results. I've read a lot on different results. Um, results that artificial swamp intelligence swamp AI has gotten and unanimous AI has go, have gotten. I want to say congratulations on that, on those, and they are very, very impressive. So, another question Do you envision that one day we might start employing the use of swamp AI at the highest level of government to help, let's say, politicians, lawmakers alike to make smarter decisions around things like resources, political unrest, and stuff like that? So, I'm not saying re- I'm saying help them make decisions hand in hand. Do you do you envision that that could happen one day? So, uh, absolutely. So, the, the using Swarm for decision making, especially among politicians, especially among um, you know, basically government groups of all sizes, from a from a town council to a you know to a parliament to a congress, um, I, I think would offer a lot of value because what we found is that. Um, the swarm, the swarming process is the most powerful when you have groups of people with diverse views, even conflicting views. Uh, right now, you know, if you have a group of people who have very conflicting views, um, they might be asked to take a vote or take a poll. And, and polling is used a lot. To, and what polling does is it shows you that where groups disagree. Right? Uh, what a poll a poll is polarizing. It shows you disagreement. It doesn't give you any path to find agreement. Whereas nature's method of a swarm is really the opposite. What a swarm does is it highlights the places where people can agree, and it helps the group find the path to the answer that they can best agree upon. And uh, and we've done studies. We've done academic studies uh, looking at. You know, polarized groups, groups of people with very different political views, and and have sh- shown that they can, when they work together as a swarm, they can find solutions that they collectively better agree upon than if they you know, pursued some other method of just either just arguing about it or just taking a vote, um, because that's I mean, it's because then then this natural method works, and you can think about it from like an evolution perspective. If a swarm of bees or a school of fish um, couldn't agree on on what to do, right? If you had one group, one group of fish wanted to go in one direction, and another group of fish wanted to go in another direction, and the school just split in half because they couldn't agree, or they were just stuck because they couldn't agree, that school of fish would have died out. And that's what happens in politics all the time. Uh, but so nature, through millions of years of evolution, found that this swarming process actually helps the groups find a solution. A, a, you know, a school of fish never splits in two. A, a, a swarm of bees never splits in two. It never you know, can't reach an answer. It, it can, and, um, and we humans can learn a lot from, uh, from these natural systems. So um, what I hear you say is politicians can actually 
use this sort of system. I think it is advisable to at least try new things. I think yeah. at least from the research, I would trust a swamp decision compared to a one man's decision. Yes, and at the end of the day, politics usually end at the end of at the end of one man. But I think I might trust a swamp decision compared to a man's decision. So on a large scale, how do you think swarm AI can be applied? So when I say a large scale, if there's a way to implement it that society can make decisions together on larger decisions. So currently, if right. US wants to go to war, I don't think everybody has a say in that, right? Just a few people. So is there a right. way to implement this on a larger scale where society is able to make decisions together? Or you think that's just too grandiose? So the swarm process can work on groups of all sizes. Um, we've seen when we first started working, we thought, you know, we would need very, very large groups. Uh, it turns out that even groups as small as four or five people, like what we did with Stanford with doctors, works really well. Um, we've worked with groups of 50 people, 100 people, you know, mo many hundred people. It, uh, the technology could work with thousands. Um, it, you know, we, we actually are working on technologies that could work with millions of people. Um, and we, you know, to do that, we're working on a technology we call hyper swarms, which are uh, the swarms of swarms, where you take a huge population and you break it up into sub swarms and, and they all overlap. And you can have these large groups, um, really large groups. And so it's definitely possible um, Politically, I don't, I mean, there's a difference between having a group make a decision and having a group express its sentiment. And so even, you know, even if we could allow the population to, exp to clearly express its sentiment, to inform politicians, so politicians really know um, what, what the population believes, what, what the population could agree upon, right? I mean, right now, the way we try to find out what a population believes is we give them a poll and that tells us what the population does not agree upon. Right? <laughs> uh, but as a swarm, we could we could say, okay, here's what the population agrees upon. Here's here's how we can find common ground. Here's how we can find solutions that maximize everybody's, um, you know, maximizes the collective interest of the of the group. Uh, and I think it's really I think there's a lot of value there. So we we as a company at Unanimous AI are, are pushing hard for larger and larger. Being able to do large groups, uh, we're working on systems that work on entirely on your phone, so that you could have you know very large groups, uh, at least give input, give you know express sentiment in in ways that um, that we think would be helpful, helpful for uh, for political decisions, helpful for 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 other decisions. So I've taken so much of your time, Louis. So there are only two questions left. I'm so sorry. Uh -huh. I wished yeah. I had you for two more hours. <laughs> so, uh, okay, one more out of the two. Um, would you say swamp decisions are better than traditional votes in all cases? If it is not all, then can you say to one, if sure. any? I just want to. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, um, so you, you know, you asked a great question, which is which is better, a swarm or a vote? Is a swarm always better? Um, and the answer is that there, it depends on the question. So, if um, if we ask a question to a population, and if if everybody knows the right answer, then there will be no difference between a swarm and a vote, right? And if 
if you know 90% of the people know the right answer, there'll be no difference between a swarm and a vote. It's it's when um, it's we're on the other side. If I ask a question to a group and nobody and everyone's everybody's guessing, 100% guessing, then again there'll be no difference between a swarm and a vote because nobody knows. But for that middle ground where uh, you're trying to forecast something and everyone has some intuition, nobody knows the right answer, but everybody has you know some amount of intuition. We you know we can amplify intelligence greatly, and so it's um, and those are really the questions that are important. You know the questions where nobody has any information or everybody knows the right answer. Usually, you don't even need to take a vote because it's it's obvious. It's but it's the it's the middle ground, and it's uh, and and where swarms work best is when um, when you have groups of people who have different perspectives, different expertise. Uh, different backgrounds, they all have you know, uh, different types of intuition and what a swarm does is allows them to combine their knowledge and wisdom and insight and intuition in an optimized way and reach you know, the best prediction possible based on this combined knowledge or the best decision possible based on this combined knowledge. Thank you very much. So the last question, what do you think, what do you, where do you think will be 2015? Give me your view or dream of the 2050 society influenced by the massive media. Yeah, so 2050, that's a, uh, I mean, that's a, a long ways out. Uh, I do think uh, my my personal view is that the this, you know, metaverse technologies that we've been talking about will be will be ubiquitous. I, I do believe that it will be augmented reality. Uh, I do believe by 2050 there will be uh, augmented reality contact lenses. And, you know, people are often skeptical that contact lenses are possible, but they really are possible. There was just just last week uh, there was the first successful test of an on-eye augmented reality contact lens with batteries on the eye, with a wireless communication on the eye. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but by 2050 I think people will have augmented reality contact lenses. And so content, information, will just we will just expect information to be everywhere, right? There will be, uh, we won't think of information as something that's trapped on a screen. And in fact, we will look back at the 2020s when people walk down the street with their head down, staring down at a screen with their neck bent, we'll think that's silly because content is just supposed to be everywhere. Um, and so I think that will happen. Uh, hopefully it will be a highly regulated world with uh, augmented reality and, and the metaverse will be regulated and safe and comp- corporations won't be able to exploit consumers. Um, hopefully uh, there will be regulation of artificial intelligence technologies so that it uh, we can get we can benefit from the power of artificial intelligence but not have it be used to profile us and influence us and manipulate us. And by 2050, we'll start to be, you know, have to think, you know, will, will we be getting close to conscious AI? Uh, it's its possible, it could have already happened. Either way, hopefully we will uh, realize that it is potentially very dangerous before we allow it to happen and do it in a safe way. But uh, right now, the uh, I don't believe we're, we are taking it as seriously as we should. Thank you very much for the beautiful answers, Lois. Um, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, I really I was, loved I uh, Thank you for teaching the audience and showing us, telling us a lot of things. Thank you very much for the great works that you did in augmented reality and the 
more than awesome work you are doing in AI and metaverse currently. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz.